0: Hello and welcome to a podcast only edition of the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. It's Culture File Debate time of the month at Culture File Towers, which means two different long form programs for you this week. Over at the Culture File Debate, I'll be talking to our regular tech soothsayer, Ashlyn Kelleher, along with painter Huey O'Donoghue, crypto art pioneer Ruth Catlow, and art financialization researcher Rachel O'Dwyer about the art, technology, and money tango in a program. And brought to you by the letters N, F and T. I'd tell you more about those letters. Podcasts are very freeing clockwise. But that session is also available wherever you get your podcasts. And there's another programme for you right here first with what I hesitate to call the normal edition of the Culture File Weekly. And this time our ears bring us from France under a state of emergency to the Irish borderlands under the foot of Tom Keeley and Yosemite National Park, revisited by its former owners. And we begin this time taking a jaunt back Back to the lost world of France in 2016 in the wake of the Bataclan attack. The setting for the latest novel from French writer Noemi Lefebvre to appear in English, courtesy of Lefebvre's regular translator Sophie Lewis. Culture files Rachel Andrews linked up with the author in Lockdown in Lyon and the translator in Lockdown in London to talk about the job of translation, work and freedom and the possibility of finding humour anywhere.
1: I must have spent months reading Klemperer and Krauss while eating bananas, and rereading Klemperer while smoking fairly continuously.
2: The year is 2016. France is in a state of emergency following terrorist attacks in Paris and Nice. In Poetics of Work, French writer Noemi Lefebvre's most recent book to be translated to English, an unnamed poet wanders the streets of Lyon.
1: Obviously, it wasn't a great idea to go for a walk wearing a beard or a headscarf, or to have the look of a controlled ethnic profile, but people really seemed happy to have their bags searched at the entrances to FNAC and Monoprix.
2: Under pressure to get a job, but unable to secure any kind of employment for a poet, the narrator instead reads accounts of life under the Third Reich and in Nazi language, smokes cannabis, eats bananas. Noemi Lefebvre's experimental writing is already feted in her native France, but her work has reached a wider audience thanks to the English-language translations of Sophie Lewis, who translated Poetics of Work, and also Lefebvre's autobiographical novel Blue Self-Portrait for the London-based publisher Les Fugitives.
1: I'm not into maximalism, particularly. I took a
2: virtual trip to London to chat to Sophie Lewis about her interest in taking on Lefebvre's work. Which
1: I see as something that has come rather out of America than sort of the big David Foster Wallace type stuff. But I am into a more minimal kind of uh, shaped, formed, focused, less than standard experimental stroke difficult approach. That I'm really excited by. I was asked by the US publisher to read several of her books and help them decide which one would be the right one to publish next in English. I'd done a couple of talk events with Noemi, and so we'd, we'd been talking, and the first thing I said was, you know, what do I need to read? What are my key texts that I should be aware of from before I start? And she gave me essentially a reading list, also a little watching list, but but mainly a reading list. I was reading uh, The Language of the Third Reich, and I was reading Karl Krauss' Third Volpolgist Night, Nacht. I read Kafka's letter to his father. I read some Ginsberg poetry. I read some Whitman. I did not read French employment law, <laughs> but I could have. From chapter five of Poetics of Work by Noemi Lefebvre. I must have spent months reading Klemperer and Krauss while eating bananas, and rereading Klemperer while smoking fairly continuously. I was getting to grips with Nazism because of fascism, and with fascism because of this national mood, with vocabulary modifications and new approaches, as if all the hatreds that had been suppressed had the right to come out without shame or reproach. I admit I was reading Klemperer to amplify it all, because the survival of a Jewish philologist under the Third Reich remains incomparably more dreadful than that of a nobody, even one in a state of
3: emergency in the good city of Lyon. Um, My name is Noémie Lefebvre, and I'm a French writer. Later, I hit lockdown Lyon to talk to Lefebvre about poetics of
2: work. The book is structured as a series of conversations between the narrator and an overbearing father figure who chides the poet for their inability to get a job.
3: I wanted to to write about work and about uh, what is the difference between an activity like poetry and an activity like uh, working. I wanted uh, to explore what's the meaning of uh, freedom in, in this world where poetry uh, exists and work and uh, that match not together. Um, suddenly uh, came the, uh, the attack uh, on the Bataclan. And so all the mood in France was uh, very um, different.
1: I could feel from the general climate that imagination was being blocked and thought paralysed by national unity in the name of freedom, and freedom co-opted as a reason to have no more of it.
3: I wanted to write uh, about the state of emergency in France, so simply I, I had to, to wait that the, the, the year uh, uh, 2016 uh, was over. We, we could, in France, uh, have a very deep reflection ab- about it, and I wanted to, to do this. I wanted to uh, explore what, what is the pure power. Who speaks in your head uh, when uh, you you want to do something and uh, in your head you, you have a voice uh, that uh, uh, says to you, don't do that, don't speak like that, don't uh, think like, like that. And this power, uh, who decides uh, over this power? And uh, the answer is nobody decides. Uh, pure power has no superior instance, yeah. And that is that—that that is the super ego. I wanted to to make a, a comical uh, figure with with it. I wanted uh, that this super ego uh, uh, had uh, also a real identity, uh, real uh, things to do. Uh, he does um, many things in this book. He travels. He, he goes to the dentist. Uh, so. It's a super that has a life, too. Uh, a bizarre life, life, but it's a life.
1: I sometimes went out in a conspicuous hat with a radical bobble and dark glasses so I could check out this view. But everyone's indifferent expressions told me I had but few suspicious aspects and a fairly acceptable appearance, eccentricities being a non-conformism that's quite well integrated into the fashion world's systems. Fucking farce. Something that's crucial to her approach is humour. Um, and that makes it sound really dry and kind of deliberate, but it's it's just it's like running through everything she does. She's very convinced of its essentialness as the only way to really discuss things that retains happy communication, essentially. You know, it's, you've got to see the funny. Many things are grim, but in the grimness is comedy too. And if you're not seeing the comedy, then we're really not human.
0: Accountable hankering for a banana now. Sophie Lewis there, reading from her translation of Noémie Lefebvre's Poetics of Work, which is out now. Rachel Andrews was the reporter. The 500 kilometer line on the map that snakes around the northern part of the island has long been a thorn or an inspiration for Irish artists. From the literary hike of the 1980s custom post-dotted border that became Colm Tobin's Bad Blood onwards, artist John Byrne's work dealt so regularly with the subject he dubbed himself the Border Worrier, evoking an ancient past but also a very present sense of fearful anxiety. Our guest this time is a border worrier of sorts, but one who's been directly inspired by Tobin's psychogeography. Tom Keeley is the son of an Irish family who grew up in England and who spent most of the last decade worrying the border, wandering and researching its natural and built environments, decoding its many wiggles. It is 500 kilometers isn't
4: it? I think it's 499 It's definitely 310 miles um, with all the wiggles. It's about 500k. My name's Tom Keeley. I um, work in relation to landscape and architecture. And I've spent the last pff, 10 years, maybe, lurking about the border between the North and Ireland. My PhD is called um, Alternative Arrangements and it's the topography along and across the Irish borderlands. I guess it started maybe in 2009, 10? Not the PhD, the thinking. Um, and I was in a bookshop in Derry called Foil Books, and there was a, a book by Con called Bad Blood, where he walked the border in the late 80s, 87, from Derry to the Irish Sea. I was really taken with the book. I was kind of really affected by it. I'm really intrigued by it um, and how he did it and why he did it and, you know, what that was like. And my dad was Irish, all his side of the family from Dublin, um, and we would come over, but we would never go to the border in the, you know, this is in the 80s and 90s. I was really interested in what this place would mean and how you can see the traces of a really complex history through the landscape and um, spaces and architectures and geographies of this 500 kilometre line on the map. Following my applying through a PhD and me starting it, there was a Brexit referendum. And the border went from this kind of fringe of Europe to the centre of the conversation really quickly and really overwhelmingly actually. And it really changed the relevance and also the um, context through which what I was doing would be kind of read and also made. That was a lot to get to grips with, not only the kind of the disappointment and almost grief of the whole Brexit process, but then what this would mean for the work that I was doing. I actually think that in some way the urgency of me looking at the border now or over the last kind of few years has made the work stronger because when I started... There was a very real feeling that um, by the time I finished, it could be a very different border.
1: When you set out to walk it, did you walk it by that line, or did you just walk the kind of the general straight line?
4: I walked the border in March 2019, and that was the reason that was kind of then was because it was the run-up to what was going to be the initial leaving date for the UK to leave the EU, 31st of March. And, you know, no deal was very much a possibility, so I really had to walk it then in terms of being able to walk it. Um, but I didn't walk the exact line. It didn't feel so critical for me to walk the exact line because often part of the feeling of the border was that you don't know where the line is. And I was really interested to, when, when do you begin to feel the sense of the border? Is it cavern? Is it... Uh, you know, is it Derry Lynn? Mm. How far either side you have to go before it kind of it's kind of out of mind? There were points when you feel you have these kind of flashes of borderness, when you see kind of sterling allowances, currency exchange, no border, 1916 societies, posters, border communities against Brexit, banners. It becomes very apparent very quickly. But a lot of the time it's very hard to decipher which side you're on. And while I think there is a difference... There's definitely a difference between Derry Lynn and Clonus. It's really hard to put your finger on exactly what that, that thing is architecturally, visually. There are some cues, signage, the buildings. There is a kind of a maybe to some places along the border in the north and almost an understandable Scottishness. But a lot of the kind of architectures and landscapes are, I mean, the border ignores them. The kind of the, the typologies of housing and bungalows. It's very difficult to read if there is a difference between each side and I'm not sure there is. And if there are kind of three stages to the work I've been doing, kind of driving it, walking it, and then this stage I'm working on at the moment, this kind of hedge school. From where I began, I feel like I've moved from looking at the border to moving into the border. And now the border's kind of disappeared. And as, as I've gone through the work, the border becomes less and less visible. And that's kind of conscious and intentional as well. Because, I mean, speaking to people, if, if you're kind of, I don't know, in Glasslock or Emmivale or, you know, Pettigo, the border isn't a factor. For all intents and purposes, it's not there. It's not visible.
1: If you go through the process of, say, walking the border, which is first of all a very strange thing to do, <laughs> because of course it's a thing that people always cross, it's not something that people actually walk. But anyway, you went through this, this interesting process and then it starts to disappear, as you're saying. Mm. Does that confirm in your mind then that borders really are um, an attitude and not a physical
3: being?
4: More than most, the border in Ireland is very much an attitude and the genius of the Good Friday Agreement and this kind of constructive ambiguity of for those that identify as British and live in the north and want to remain part of the United Kingdom, that they feel strongly tied to that, the border is there. The the passport, the currency, it all speaks to it. But if you are from wherever, I mean, uh, Castlederg or Kilita and you identify as Irish, you're on the same landmass. I mean, yes, there's the euro pound thing, but you're. Someone said to me, You mean, I don't see the border, I just see Ireland. And I think, well, obviously, that is a position, but also it's a kind, of, kind of a practical reality. Mm. So, depending on kind of which side of the house you might be sitting on, the border is a state of mind. Mm. Although I think it's become very close to not being so recently. So I guess I'm trying to plot a route through the borderlands, both like through language and positions and politics, but by looking at the architecture and the landscape really closely and seeing where that leaves me. My family are Irish. I grew up in England. I have an English accent. I'm studying... But the university I'm based at is in England. I now live in Ireland. I mean, Like I said, there's some kind of border in me as well. Yeah that maybe makes me well-placed to think about this stuff. I struggled with feeling like I could have an opinion on it for a good while. I don't feel like that now. Um, but the nuance is the condition, and you can't write a history of the border because it's so contested. The Ulster Museum was going to do a exhibit on the Troubles, the conflict... Again, what, whichever arrangement of terminology you want to kind of call it, um, but no one could agree, as you might imagine. And so they left the room empty, which sounds like one of the strongest pieces of historical conceptual exhibition making ever. <laughs> not, I have no idea if it's true or not. I haven't been to the museum recently enough to see. But yeah, that that, that whole thing of him. Um, in the spirit of alternative arrangement, I mean, what do you even call it? The Irish border, if you're in England. I've been very conscious not to call it the Irish border, which is why I call it the Irish Borderlands in, in the in the title. You know, the Irish border, the border, the British border in Ireland. What do you even call it that kind of can be rearranged alternatively to kind of speak to different moments and different times and different groups? You know, the Derry, Londonderry thing the North, the North of Ireland, Northern Ireland, mm. Northern Ireland, the Occupied Six. I mean, the, 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 the lists go on.
1: But what you're suggesting, really, is that there, there is no language that's not biased.
4: They kind of act as like a, a shibboleth, I think that's the right term, the, the kind of the giveaway. What, what you call things can, is an instant giveaway as to kind of potentially your politics and your position. I think I'm going to try and use all the language. I had various, I mean, different cameras. Different cameras makes it sound much more high tech than it actually was. I had my phone. I also had um, like a GoPro, like a, a knockoff GoPro, attached to my rucksack that I take. I took a photo every half an hour, so I have a photo of every half hour of the walk of the border that I did. I was being quite intuitive. I was taking photos of things that I was drawn to. Kind of, I guess one of the things that I'm always drawn to in Places is kind of like the double take, and uh, you know uh, uh, the anomaly, or the things that look kind of slightly out of place, but you know are very much of that place. A pile of rubble, to you know a classical column outside of a nineteen seventies bungalow, to the house that someone saw Grand Designs once and went absolutely crackers with it. And I think there is humour in all of those, but I don't think I'm laughing at them. So I have this kind of this gallery of a lot of buildings, um, a lot of stretches of landscape, a lot of kind of signage, and I basically I, I, I collated. I mean, I had thousands of photos from the walk, and I put my favourite 310, one for each mile of the border, into especially I chose, I edited them down, and into that spreadsheet. I kind of in a similar kind of obsessive way, maybe as it as it takes the same mindset to actually walk from Derry to Carlingford. I went through it and um, put in the date I took it, the state, which side of the border it was on, the county, the townland, townland Asquelga, translation back to English, the GPS coordinates, and then like a real intuitive stream of consciousness of um, what I could see in the image, which is not foolproof, it's just not my, my first impressions. Then I kind of basically ran all this, these materials that I'd been, you know, uh, signage, rubble, red and white tape, uh, tarmac, classical column, um, corrugated metal um, bin through this spreadsheet. And I had like a, this, this list, not definitive, an arrangement, um, a version of events, a list of what the border is made of. Tarmac is the most common thing, at least in terms of walking, I know that two-thirds of the river is made of river or stream, so maybe that's more common, but it wasn't on my walk. And uh, I now have this palette of materials, which is the next kind of thing I'm going to be doing with it. I've identified six materials, which are breeze blocks, like crazy paving, corrugated metal, classical columns, signage, and tarmac. And I'm going to go to meet people It's part of this kind of what I'm calling a hedge school uh, to meet people at at Source and talk about how they've made these things, these typical things that are definitely of the border, also much of Ireland, are those kind of sinews of kind of familiarity that I'm hoping to use as a way of kind of talking about the history of the border. And after I go meet the the quarry, meet the road sign makers, the plaster factory, uh, the cement works and kind of interview them I want to use the those elements of those texts and and my own kind of thoughts to deliver a series of lectures outside the barn with the corrugated metal outside the house with the classical column and so on in situ to probably no one actually (laughs) but anyone who's passing on will maybe broadcast them Um, But then to use those materials to create my own alternative arrangements in other kind of historical sites along the border. These almost, these, these follies, installing these arrangements or rearranging them in certain sites as a way of, I guess, drawing people's eye to the border. Because it is a really interesting place. So these kind of sites that kind of articulate the border in different ways and I think whether you're in Great Britain, or in some ways, some parts of Ireland, we don't look at the border, look away. And uh, aside from any of the politics and the histories, it's it's a really beautiful place. It should be a national park. It really should be a really fascinating
0: national park. Tom Keeley there, and the reporter was Anya Gallagher. And you can find more about that and his other projects on Instagram. Search Keeley Travel, slogan, a travel agency that doesn't sell holidays. And finally, on this edition of the Culture File Weekly. Our journey along the naturalist bookshelf reaches S for Sharma, which means we haven't been working alphabetically still. For this latest edition, Paddy Woodworth picks out Simon Sharma's 1995 exploration, Landscape and Memory, a book that was an early part of our correspondent's own journey in thinking and writing about the past, present and future of the Earth and the place of humans in it and on it.
5: Nearly 20 years ago, while vaguely pondering the idea of writing a book that would be, in some way, about nature. I used to procrastinate by browsing in a local bookstore. A dauntingly large and dense volume by Simon Sharma, Landscape and Memory, caught my eye so often that I finally took it to the cashier's desk. Looking back over my notes on it now, I see that my first words were simply This is a treasure trove. I don't think I have ever taken so many notes on any book, nor annotated one so many times over. What strikes me most today, reopening it for the first time in about a decade, is how many of Shama's ideas the book fizzes with stimulating, challenging thoughts, fed into what I would later write myself. And how many of these ideas are still my daily companions. Shortly after reading Shama, I finally embarked on writing a book about ecological restoration. This is the daring conservation strategy that claims that it is still possible, even today, to recover much of the lost natural riches of degraded natural landscapes. Restoration is not Sharma's subject but he taught me some important basics about our place in the natural world. He argues that we should be very sceptical about notions of a return to some kind of pristine wilderness, unsullied by our species. And so I learned early on that in order to meaningfully restore a landscape, we should surely be able to fully understand all of its past and the role we humans have played in shaping it. Shama writes, Even the landscapes that we suppose to be most free of our culture may turn out, on closer inspection, to be its product. And he says that this is no cause for guilt and sorrow, but for celebration. Now his use of the word product here is, in one sense, a gross overstatement. The biological diversity of our landscapes, with all their infinitely complex interconnectedness, has not been produced by humans over 20,000 years. Rather, they have been produced by geological and biological evolution over millions of centuries. Yet Shama's point holds up in broad strokes. The impacts of our species can be read everywhere, from the Amazon to the Arctic, if you look carefully enough. Even the wildest landscapes are palimpsests. On close examination, they often reveal layer upon layer of distinct human engagement with them over history. This is poignantly illustrated in the case of the awesome peaks and high meadows that became Yosemite National Park in California. The iconic images of this park were created by Anselm Adams, The quintessential photographer of apparently pristine landscapes. In Adam's Yosemite, people rarely feature, and then they are usually tiny and insignificant, awestruck intruders. To create these images, as Sharma puts it, those Native Americans who had occupied Yosemite for centuries had to be edited out of Adam's idyll. They had, in any case, been escorted off their own premises by the U.S. Cavalry, decades earlier. Their ageing leaders were once invited back by the National Park authorities to show them how well the new owners were caring for their old home places. But the chieftains were outraged. You have let the valley get so dirty, they exclaimed. The park bosses were mystified. What could these ignorant, if vaguely noble, savages possibly mean. Well, said one of them, you have let it fill up with trees. It was the National Park's managers who were ignorant. The Native Americans did not share their romantic attachment to wild nature, to a world without us. They had burned back the forested valley floors systematically, managing them to create the savanna landscape that was most productive for their hunting and gathering economy. Yosemite had long been a cultural landscape, a socio-ecosystem. This story suggests that the fashionable and seductive, but sometimes sadly superficial concept of rewilding, may not always be the best guide to restoring a more sustainable and biodiverse future. Incorporating traditional forms of land management often produces better results than abandonment. Chama makes it clear that he shares the dismay at the ongoing degradation of the planet. Indeed, he grasped the gravity of the environmental crisis before many people noticed it at all. But he insists on reminding us that the long relationship between culture and nature has not been an unrelieved and predetermined calamity, and he hopes by revealing the richness, antiquity and complexity of our landscape tradition to show just how much we have to lose. And in 621 unforgettable pages, he does just that.
0: Paddy Woodworth there with his latest addition to the Naturalist Bookshelf, Simon Sharma's Landscape and Memory. And that brings us to the end of this podcast only edition of the Culture File Weekly. Don't forget to check out the Culture debate. We'll be back with more topographic reappropriation next Saturday evening on RTE Lyric FM. Till then, bye now.